Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Just after 8 o'clock here in the UK, and it's Wednesday, that means it's another episode of Midweek Motorsport. Hello there, uh, this is John Hindhoff, and this is Series 12, Episode 41 by my counting, and it is only my counting, because there's no Tim Gray this week, he's in a secret location, so secret, he hasn't told us where he's gone, uh, but he does tell us he'll be back uh, for next week's show. Uh, let's get straight into... The business of the show. Got a lot to get through as usual tonight. And here's the news jingle. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And our top story concerns, of course, Formula One. It's been... Hooray! That was Nick Damon, our Formula One correspondent. (laughs) It's been all over the press in the UK. You can't go anywhere without seeing... A picture of Stevenson's Stevenson's Stevenage's finest, them dragged up on a council estate to world champion for the fourth time. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I was bored with it oh, by Monday afternoon. Never mind now, but um, takes nothing away. I'm bored with the. I should say I'm bored with the reporting of it, not with the achievement. Um, first of all, congratulations to Mercedes. It is four years in a row with drivers and constructors. Uh, championship and to Lewis who has his fourth championship uh, making him the British driver with the most championships although not quite yet the British driver who is the most successful in terms of his win percentage but he's very close to that and I'm sure he will be eventually um, let, let's let's get let's get that big story out of the way first of all I'm sure it wasn't the way he wanted uh, to win it we'll talk about the race in a moment but you cannot take anything away from Mercedes-Benz, AMG, Petronas, F1, and I also think not anything from Lewis this year. He's, uh, his performance has been pretty good. Yep, um, and obviously he owes it all to radio, radio control car racing, because that's where he started. That's been um, all over the telly as well, hasn't it? He was on Blue Peter yeah. when he was eight. Yeah, he was, he, and his, his, his brother, obviously, I've actually been to meetings with his brother's been, brother's been racing. Um, but yeah. No, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a fantastic achievement um, built on um, the ability to um, wrestle the car at the beginning of the season and then drive the car when it was a bit more to his liking and also change his driving style and work with the team to uh, develop that. I think, as we said last week, the, the lack of Nico Rosberg in the team was, was rather more significant than uh, even Mercedes thought it would be. Cause not only did they get a, uh, a faster Lewis Hamilton, they got a faster car out of it as well when you're wasting your time bothering about your teammate and actually thinking about how to improve the uh, your driver and your and your car and working with the, uh, the well, thousand people across Stuttgart, Bricksworth and Brackley. Um, 
he does tend to help. But yeah, I mean, it's great performance. Um, yeah, the race itself. I think. I well, think come back to the race in a moment. Before we get before we get the race, I, I, I want to pick up on a couple of points that you've made there. First of all, the state of mind of Lewis. We've talked about this this year. Um, it was, I think, probably his strongest year mentally, um, his most focused year mentally, and uh, absolutely perfectly shown by his attitude over the last few races for me. Um, has he now turned the corner with that, do we think? And, and is it just a question of getting him in the right environment? Because clearly, in the mood he has been this year, um, without having somebody like Alonso in a car that is equal to or nearly equal to the performance of the Mercedes, he, he's unstoppable. Yeah, I think I mean a lot is made of um, Lewis's supposed fragile mentality, but um, I think that's probably because it's about the only chink people can see in the armor of his driving. He is he is now the um, the greatest qualifier um, of all time um, statistically, and probably you know equal or or actually the best person in the one lap on Saturday. Though as um, some of the more senior drivers have made out this wasn't really a thing until it became very hard to overtake in the late 80s yes. but you know it's been a thing for nearly 30 years um, he is and I think you know he's certainly been more consistent this year and and, and I think because he's, he's had problems um, rowing a little bit with the uh, with the car rather than anyone else but you know you, you look at the other drivers and you can't say they're all mental rocks you know they don't have you know, enough you know, look at the you know, Fettel. Well, he's just a, a, a cornucopia of, 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 of petulance <laughs> and anger management. Um, Alonso didn't cover himself in glory when he was being completely out outfoxed mentally by Lewis when they were together at McLaren. And since then, he's he's also fallen out um, on a number of occasions, a number of teams. And he's basically just been sitting in the corner being grumpy about and, say, and telling everyone how fast he is uh, for the last three years. So um, I think a lot more is made of it. I think what what is true is that Lewis can have can have this demeanor where he seems to be grumpy and he seems to be down in the dumps and he seems to be not particularly happy about things and it was evident in parts in the radio in this this race but um I think that's just the, just the way he sounds on the radio. I think, you know, it's, it's like poor old Roman Grosjean actually had to have a helmet saying I'm not always miserable because his radio messages said he was he was one thing. Where, where we get so little insight into a unfiltered driver, which of course we do these days, often the only unfiltered things we think we're hearing are the radio messages. And so you can you can turn around and say positive things about certain drivers, negative other things. Again, it's, it's, it's a tiny percentage of those um, messages that are actually broadcast, and, and they are he, filtered. They are filtered. Yeah. They are filtered for editorial reasons, and and that's you know one of the issues that I've got about when we hear all of the bad language. There's no need for that to be heard. It, that's purely being selected for entertainment purposes. And I, and I kind of think that if you're if you're in a situation where you are wanting to get a point over, and you are in huge amount of noise, you need to find out what's going on. I don't think I would necessarily follow all the. Uh, the methodology of politeness. Okay. Excuse me, mate. Could you tell me just do us a favour? Could you? Could you tell me you know, where's Seb at the moment? Yeah. You're going to go. I need to know where Vettel is. You're going to. You're going to make yeah. it a, a yeah. harsh command. You know. And if you're, uh, I, you know, and you're not going to say. Could you explain to me the entire reasons why you put me on the uh, the super soft, not the ultra soft? You're going to say I think you've made the wrong tire choice. Well, you know, we've seen it, haven't we, in endurance racing uh, quite a lot. And if you go back as far as the first Truth in Twenty Four movie. Um, the discussion and the back and forth. There tends to be a lot more back and forth now in endurance racing as well because of the, the tactical side of things, certainly with the P1 hybrid cars. I, I think it's very interesting the 
the contrast about how information is passed backwards and forwards and and how the engineers deal with different drivers. Um, but you said something there that was very interesting. I, I think Hamilton was a bit chased off in the first part of the race after the first corner, first corners incident. Um, but he was he clearly got himself through that. I think helped by Bonoy's engineer particularly when he was taking off the leash a little bit and said, "Drive, you can drive a bit, because originally, of course, he was going to have to do the whole of the rest of the race yeah, I on think that one set of tyres. After the virtual safety car, is much happier. Let's be, let's be really honest about this. I've no idea, John, what you think about this, but I am, in my own mind, 95% certain that Fettel hit him deliberately. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. That's very interesting, because, uh, uh, because, because, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I said. You don't agree with me. No, 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 no. no I, I, I was reacting to a tweet uh, on Sunday evening. Um, from who? Late on on Sunday evening, it would have been. It was from Marino. Uh, Marino Franchitti said, um, "By that Vettel's a bit clumsy, isn't he?" And I, I thought that was an interesting way of of putting it. Um, at the time, I was fairly non-committal about it. The more I've seen it, uh, the more I think that was an, the act of a desperate man. And we've seen no. those asked, acts before from Vettel, from other drivers. I think it was the act of a desperate man. Here's, here's how I saw it go down. He knew he had to get ahead of Verstappen if he was going to win the race. He knew that the best time to do that was right at the start. He also knew that Verstappen was going to drag up to him and, and do exactly what happened. So the first thing he tried to do was put him off the track, which you can look at that either way. Um, Verstappen put himself in the situation to do that, to let him do that, um, but he still managed to get his way through. In that, Vettel damaged his front wing. So already, Vettel knew he was going to have the pit. And when Hamilton went round as well, he had to do something at that at that point to affect Hamilton's race. And running into him was his only option. He he couldn't do any more damage to his wing. It was already damaged to the point where he would have to pit. And I think you're absolutely right. I've I've had a spirited discussion with a number of people on Twitter, um, saying that Hamilton got round. Then he had to lift, and that might have caught Vettel out. Uh, yep, okay. I think that's a reasonable point, well presented. But it, every time I look at that now, and look at particularly the onboard replay from Vettel. Um, I I think there's an element of desperation in it. That's that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I watched it and, uh, and 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 live. I thought it was beyond clumsy because Hamilton wasn't just past; he was as far past as you can be because it was the rear end of his tire got punted by the front end of uh, of the wing. And I think people say, "Oh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the melee of the start; they can't possibly." Know. And you're thinking these guys are at the top of the game; they have that extra mental capacity to think this through they're millimeter perfect as well exactly and and one of the things that oddly the thing that actually convinced me the most was um fettel's post-race interview when he was obviously incredibly genuinely disappointed so it meant that he had gone into that race thinking he had a chance of he still had a chance of winning the world championship, even though it was mathematically really difficult. He had he had mentally well, or at least himself. keeping it alive. Yeah, he had mentally prepared himself that he was not going to he was going to stay in the championship. Uh, as you say, at the point that he got to, the only way he could stay in the championship was to eliminate Lewis realistically. And when the start hadn't gone well, you know he wasn't in the lead, so he, he couldn't get, do 
part A, which is win and hope for a, a mechanical failure, he then had to do something else. And it's like, he was aware he'd, he'd had a clunk. He was aware he probably had an issue with his nose. The next thing you do, he, he decided to do, and, we, and he has this capacity. We've seen him do it on more than one occasion. We've seen him, we, we do not, you know, if you, it, it, I don't want to sit up in the, in, in the, in the typical um, idea of the sporting Englishman and the um, less sporting um, uh, German, but we've seen it before from him. You know, multi twenty one. Let's 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 take it go a few years. Multi twenty one against Lewis giving Bottas back position in in Hungary. That sums the two drivers up. That's the difference in their attitude. Don't forget, coming out of Hungary, everyone was saying that Lewis's sporting sporting behaviour with with uh, Valtteri might lose in the championship. But he doesn't want to win it the right way. And and I think that whereas Vettel has a little bit of the Schumacher gene and wants to win it anyway, and he knew at that point his his championship was over. If if, if Vettel got away, he had a broken wing and Lewis was there. All he had to do, the only chance he had, was to stop Lewis finishing. And the way you feel you did it is you hit him. You don't know what's going to happen. As you said, he was it was it was pounds of pens for him because he was going to have to place his wing anyway. So he broke mm-hmm. it a bit more. You know, and 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 that was well. He had a nice think, sharper edge to actually well, have a go at him with. He may well have thought that, but yeah, and, and it is interesting. And, and and all praise to to Ted Kravitz at the end of the race because he actually finally proves that he actually did. Ted Kravitz, did, for those that don't know, is the uh, Sky Pit sorry. reporter, and he went and took yeah. a photograph yeah, of the back of the car. A journalism because no one else yeah. was talking about was the car down when they were saying, "Oh, Lewis isn't really going anywhere." Well, he'd lost he'd lost one edge of his diffuser. And after Massively the front wing, the diffuser is the most important part of the aerodynamics of the car. And it was pretty obvious the car was much happier once he got on the super softs from the softs and he wasn't having to uh, run them for 80 laps. So he was able to, to at least catch up some people. But a lot of the problems he had in making the sort of gains that Vettel was making was that his car was damaged yeah. by Vettel. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Well, he might even of... say that Vettel might not have been expecting the tyre to be damaged, but aimed for the diffuser, knowing what he knows about the cars. I mean, it's something that we've talked about in sports car racing before. Like him at the back is a great place because yeah, there's a yeah. lot of things can do, do damage there so I think you know it's been it's been swept under the carpet by everyone you know Lewis won't even discuss it you know, oh, except he said straight well, away on the radio he did yeah. that on purpose yeah, now no, listen great, what yeah. we've got to say though Nick in in uh, in the interest of balanced reporting is the stewards looked at it and felt it didn't need anything any action taken so in that respect it, it's it's closed yeah. now and it's the reason being for that, John, is it didn't affect the championship because um, effectively in having to replace all he did was reduce Lewis's points total because he was out. Lewis was both out. And by doing that, he was effectively taking himself out of the championship running as far as the stewards saw it. They're both off the back. So can I yeah, just make one point? I'm gonna, I, I, having said this, what the stewards have said, um, we saw an inappropriate uh, action from Fettel against Hamilton in Baku when he mm-hmm. rear-ended him and then dro- drove into him and the action by the stewards wasn't harsh enough because they gave a penalty not expecting Lewis to have to pit to have his headrest refitted mm-hmm. and I-, I just wonder whether they panicked and didn't, I mean it's Tom Christensen was the driver steward, I-, I respect Tom massively I would love to have been a fly on the wall but I'll tell you now, first lap or not first lap if that had been many of the races that we go to see, that would have been called as avoidable contact. Oh, yeah. that, for me, that yeah. was the very definition of avoidable contact. Whether I, I, or not I, it was I, deliberate, whether or not yeah. it was deliberate, it, 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 take that out of it for now. 
it was avoidable contact. But deliberate or not, the fault was 100% fettled. Oh, yeah, well, I don't think anybody it, it, disagrees it, it, with it, that. Well, someone said, oh, well, we shouldn't have been, tr- should just have settled for third. Well, that's not racing drivers do. But, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, and it's been, it's been set on the carpet, and it's just another, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example it's, of, you know, how things are. If it, racing drivers will still, try and be, will still try and win in any way it's, possible. Sometimes. It's also an example of fettle and that, yeah. that mental strength that we were talking about and him not having that. You know, I, uh, I did think we turned the corner with Vettel earlier on um, this season and back into last season. I, I'm, I'm not sure now. I think we've seen um, Sebastian at his petulant best or worst, depending on which way you look at it. I mean, it's great copy. There's plenty of things to talk about. Um, not least Max Verstappen winning the race. Um, well, I, I mean, I think if you think about Vettel, Vettel, you know, has... has effectively been on a from you know being decried as a decried uh, implored as the greatest driver of the modern era uh coming up out of that 13 the last four years all he's done is shoot his reputation in the foot um you know he had the first year the year, the year after when in 14 he was just useless you know because yeah, he couldn't be bothered with a bad car uh and got beaten by ricardo he went to ferrari had quite a reasonable season and last season was terrible and this year he's been he's been good but he's just lost his copybook with all his mental things you know mental aberrations and you kind of think he must know that he must feel if he's really that he probably as Ferrari feels the threat from Red Bull more than Mercedes do, yeah, because they've had this clear run at Mercedes, a Mercedes car that has been, had has weaknesses. He's, yeah, I think it's universally accepted that this year Mercedes did not have the best car. They well, had the that, best that, car on that's, a Saturday, yeah. but not on a Sunday. That's interesting. You should say that. That's interesting. You should say that, and not to preempt our Man of the Year awards. But I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. I, I don't think McLaren have necessarily Maybe. had the be, the best uh, Mercedes. Sorry, thank you. Um, still doing that. I don't think that Mercedes have had the best package necessarily. They certainly haven't had. I'll rephrase that. They certainly haven't had the fastest car in all situations. It may have turned out to have been the best package actually across the full season, and of course that's how you win championships. Um, they've had. Two drivers who've picked up points, although I do feel that Bottas has been disappointing. I think Bottas has been disappointing, uh, particularly in the second half of the season when the the less than stellar handling capabilities of the Mercedes chassis has have reared their, their ugly head. Uh, slow corners are not what that car is built for. It does not like going around slow corners. Uh, uh, well which makes it very stable through the high stuff, of course. Um, you know, even I know that. Um, but I don't think Bottas has been stellar. Um, I, I, I don't think his position is, is secure uh, at the end of his contract. But uh, I, I do think that, you know, it's, it's a bit like winning ugly in any sport, isn't it? You win a championship, you win a league, by, and effectively that's what we're talking about. You, you, you win a championship, you win a league by collecting points when uh, you maybe haven't got the right tools for the job. And that's what Mercedes have done this year. That's what Hamilton's done this year. I, I think he's shown much greater maturity as well he might with his, the experience behind him. Um, but I think Ferrari will be looking at this year and thinking it's one that got away. I, yeah, I think certainly they've, they've ended up, they're going to end up losing both championships by a long distance. And they might they, lose, they might lose second in the driver's championship now because if, Bo- if Bottas gets Ferrari. his act together, he can overhaul Vettel. And Ferrari haven't won a race in the second half of the season. Yes, good point. Haven't looked close to it, have they? 
uh, well, apart from Singapore, where they were looking very good for about 15 yards. Um, but no, it, yeah, it's been a combination of things that, that, that break you down. Driver error, mechanical problems. You know, if, you know, if we think about it, um, we've now had, what, 18 races? So th- of 36 potential finishes uh, in the points, Mercedes have managed 35. Mm. Uh, and the only one they didn't manage was when they had to run an, a, a, an older engine for Bottas. They didn't want to run because the other one had, had broken down in Barcelona. But, you know, so they've, they've had a, a fantastic reliability this year. Um, now Lewis is, has had two poor races. One was due to a, um, a, a, a it was a Monaco where he got caught out by a, a, prob- a flag in Q2 in uh, qualifying, and then had he couldn't really overtake him. Well, in this one where he got punted off the circuit by somebody else, effectively. So um, you know it's been a great performance, but the car is a handful. The car's not, and I think yeah, one of the things that they will, and and one of the worrying things I think if you look at it, if you look at Ferrari. Um, a car designed by James, well, inspired by James Allen, is not there anymore. A car that hasn't pushed forward in many ways, certainly the Red Bull has, and, and, and in some ways, the Mercedes has. The Mercedes, in ways, has been trying to correct its problems. You go to next year, stable regulations, you think, right, what's, how are Red Bull going to improve? Well, they have the best chassis, Renault are promising big engine improvements. Great. Needs Mercedes to. obviously got problems with their car, but when you have obvious problems, it means you can work out obvious solutions. Yes. You know, when you've got a car that's already the nicest car everywhere, you know, you're just polishing something. You're polishing a razor blade a little bit more. Yes. And you, and if you were to sit down and look at it in a, in a you know, a, a, an analytical way, you could see, I can see how Red Bull are going to improve. Yeah. I can see how Mercedes are going to improve, like a large amount just from what they've got. But looking at the base that Ferrari have got, yeah, you know, have they, unless they look at a completely new concept, which is very, very risky, as McLaren has found out, where, you know, when you've got a benign, lovely thing, which is being beaten by you know, an animal on one weekend and on an even more uh, well-set-up and designed car on the other side. You, you, you're a bit stuck in the middle, aren't you? Hence the reason they've not won anything in the second half of the season. You brought up Renault there. I was going to talk about other drivers. I'll go to other drivers in a moment, but you talk about Renault. An awful weekend for Renault. Or Tag Heuer, of course. They won. Uh, yeah, with everybody going, oh my God, is it going to last? I mean, great drama. Uh, Christian Horner, very careful to tell the UK TV companies that he, he doesn't have a Renault engine, of course. He has a Tag Heuer. Well, um, one of his Tag Heuer engines expired, having uh, just been um, had a, a whole load of new elements to it, that being Danny Ricciardo. Thursday wasn't running like clockwork, was it? But um, tish. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it was just awful. For Renault, they don't like the high altitude. They don't like the the uh, high temperatures. I mean, that was awful. They've got to get their act together. Um, McLaren might be jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Uh, well, no, I think year. I think the fact is that is that Renault said they got their their sums wrong um, for the altitude. They just just went too aggressive, and okay. and you know it's it's interesting these turbo engines and the the cooling they require, and losing the uh, the oxygen and the volume of air, the twenty two percent, which was mentioned about hundred million times, um, it, it affects them very much. And Renault pushed the envelope too far, and I think they the only car, was it the only car that finished was actually the winning car, wasn't it? Because yes, they correct. lost Ricardo, they lost both of the no Gasly finished, didn't he? Did he finish Gasly? Yeah, he did. Um, poor old Brendan broke down, which is unlucky. He's going very very well. He was on he was on for points. Same as Hulkenberg was very unlucky. Um, Saints had had uncharacteristic poor start to race, but so they had Hulkenberg. In fairness, wasn't the engine. It was actually a bit more scary because mm. he had a electrical storage <laughs> problem and Don't was touch it. and was told to jump out without grounding himself and to not to let anybody touch it. And you know that that is that again has been largely brushed under the carpet, but. 
that is a scary situation when you've got a car that can't be moved by the marshals because it's not safe and you're telling the driver to get out immediately because it's an unsafe situation for him. I mean, if the car had been in flames, we could have all seen that and went, oh my goodness, you can do something with it. That was Hartley's car, obviously. But um, when it's something like that and the guys are going, oh, get out, get out, get out, hurry up, get out, before you're electrocuted, that... That worries me. It worries me a lot, particularly as we've discussed before, that carbon fibre does uh, does conduct electricity. Yeah, it's, it's a worrying situation. You don't know exactly what the problem was. You don't know how much they're, they're sitting there um, just being extra careful because if you're abandoning the car when it's fully charged, obviously it's sitting there with a with several uh, kilowatts of, of power knocking about. So it was probably a, they, they, they probably felt the thing was charged. Like it wasn't giving the, the right discharging uh, mm. information, so they just wanted to find a way of actually discharging it properly. Um, and, and a bit of safe than sorry, really, because a jolt from one of those things, I think, whilst not fatal, it's mean, certainly very damaging. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whenever you have these hybrid modes, when you have a, 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 an electrical system, there's always a chance of getting a shock of it. I mean, I have a jolt of a 12 volt, you know, classic car system. But that's because, you know, but that doesn't, wasn't it designed to do that, though, in fairness? Well, it was normally designed not to work, as far as I can see, with old Joe Lucas, but there we go. Um, yes, I yeah, did like I think, the I mean, uh, insulated hooks as well when they were changing battery packs earlier yeah, in the in the weekend on, I think that was the Force India, was that? No, that was Gasly's car, wasn't they've, it? They've all got an insulated hook. It's, it's one of the standard pieces of... Um, it's, it's, you can't, if, yeah, if someone gets starts shaking like the uh, Frankenstein's monster at the start of his, uh, his, his rebirth, you have to just yank him off with a hook. I know. Uh, let's uh, remind everybody, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport, Series 12, episode 41, I think I said. Uh, And Nick Damon is on the line, not with us uh, here tonight. Uh, He's right in the middle of the carbon fibre triangle. Yes, it is 41. And uh, we're talking Formula 1, of course. Both championships now uh, sorted out. Looking back at... uh, the Mexico event, uh, which you can't fault for the enthusiasm of the fans. That was magnificent. Look at one or two of the other drivers. Um, people rather um, having a bit of snigger at uh, Fernando Alonso for telling everybody that they have the best chassis on the grid, uh, except uh, he put in a couple of fastest sector, overall fastest sector times in the twisty bits at the weekend. I thought he, he drove well again. Um, is is there any is there any uh, credence to what Alonso was saying about this year's uh, McLaren? Who knows? You can't <laughs> tell. Uh, um, it's obviously got a decent chassis. Let's be honest, because it has got a very has not got a decent engine. It's got a very decent chassis. It was embarrassing in a straight line, wasn't um, it? You know, there's, there are elements. I think when it, you know that they, they probably can afford to look at the downforce. So everyone thinks the car is going to be slow, so they can perhaps make it, you know, flatter the chassis by making the engine look worse if they want to. Mm. Uh, by more downforce, so I think everyone had everything piled on they could get anyway in Mexico. So perhaps it was a true reflection. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think um, I mean, Fernando was certainly very feisty. He wasn't just uh, moving over the left and letting people through. So that was uh, the right way to do things. Um, yeah, especially you know, when uh, Lewis came up to him, that was a cracking half a lap, wasn't it? I mean, the thing is, though, with McLaren, you know, it, it's pretty obvious. You know, that the Renault is a race-winning engine; it just won a race, and it's run two of the last four races. So, you know, McLaren are going to need to put with their, their money where their mouth is because um, it's a customer Renault engine that, you know, as, as badged by a watch manufacturer that's winning. So, they need to be able to win races as well. So, it's it, it, he should have a winning package if they can put if they can put together a winning chassis. So, it's a, a challenge now for McLaren to prove that it's all been Honda's fault for the last three years. I mean, it's obviously mostly Honda's fault, but 
who knows? But uh, let's have a look at it, the results then. Uh, Alonso in so in point scorers, Alonso in tenth, Hamilton in ninth, winning the world championship. Kevin Magnussen uh, had a decent run for Haas, possibly one of his better drives and the car's better performances of the season. Uh, Sergio Perez was cheered every inch of the way at the seventh in the Force India. Good weekend for Force India. Two cars uh, in the points this weekend with Esteban Ocon in fifth position. And they've guaranteed fourth in the championship. Oh, right. Okay, good. First independent, though, of course. You know, Red Bull keeps saying they're not a works team, despite the $400 million. Um, yeah, so they, they, and they are, yeah, they, they have been now, is it three years now? Is it four years in a row? They've been the best points for your buck team of, of all the teams. Um, Who Force India yeah, have, yeah. Force India, yeah. So they are they, they're doing an absolutely superb job out of the old Jordan factory in Silverson. Um, there's nothing to suggest. And they've managed to do it across a regulation change. Uh, Good point. Uh, which is a huge challenge for a, a company with a, with a more limited budget. And uh, there's nothing to say they won't be able to carry on um, performing well. But you do have to think that it's going to be more difficult next year. You, you would say there's going to be definitely going to be an uptick from uh, Renault. You would think there'd be a, an uptick, well, a, an uptick also from McLaren uh, and therefore, and possibly Williams as well. So that's three teams who are going to be battling hard for them, um, at least for fourth. And I'm sure some of those have ambitions of breaking the top three. So it's a, but yeah, claim it when you can take the cash because that's what counts with the constructor trophy. So they're going to make a, ni- a nice load of cash. The budget is, is filled uh, for Force India for next year and they deserve it. Um, Yes, fair point, well made. Uh, Williams in the top six at six. Uh, it was Lance Stroll rather than uh, Felipe Massa who got the ten points there. Then Vettel in fourth. Uh, thank goodness Ferrari didn't switch Raikkonen and, and and Vettel around. There was no real point in doing that, and the gap was twenty four seconds uh, at the line. Two Finns on the podium with Raikkonen third. Uh, relatively quiet race for Kimi. Uh, did his job, I suppose, and. Still the smiliest man on the grid. Yeah. Uh, Valtteri Bottas, uh, despite me saying that I don't think he's performed very well, gets a second place. Uh, external influences there, getting him his 18 points. Max Verstappen. Um, what do we what do we think of Max? Is he is he back on it again? Is he took his opportunity? You've got to say that uh, perfectly planned, perfectly executed. Got the the. Win at the st- got the win at the start really from from that yeah. first manoeuvre, well, like, but wouldn't slow did... down when he was being told to. Well, he definitely got the win at the start because not only did he end up with the lead, but the two people who could possibly beat him hit each other. Yes, uh, and that and the only other person who's, who's probably in the same uh, category of, of talent is driving a Honda, a McLaren Honda. So uh, at that point, there were no rivals to him. The only rival was his Renault engine, uh, and uh, you know there is there is the things that you know, you know sometimes it isn't. It's actually easy. It's, it's harder to drive slower, yeah. and you're more likely to make mistakes. And I don't think he was really pushing it. I mean, at the end, at the end of the, they'll have uh, turned event, it all down, won't they? It, it, yeah, exactly. They they, they were sitting there watching the turbo. They're, Worry about the turbo. That was the issue they were worried about most. Mm. And he'd be in an engine mode, which minimised their issues in the turbo temperature where it was. So, you know, and he did he did a great job. But he was, you know, he did what you need to do when you are a top line F one driver, which is take your opportunities, grabbed it by both hands, got a bit of a break of luck at the start, and you know he beat Bottas and Raikkonen, which is not quite the achievement it should be. Um, but he did a great job. He did a faultless faultless performance, and. Unfortunately, he didn't get much, yeah he didn't get much TV time. He didn't get much attention at the end because it's all about Lewis. But you know his time will come. He's now won three races. And, you know it, it would be a brave man or a selection of the world's worst decisions of team moves that will stop Verstappen from being a world champion at some point. Uh, let's talk about his teammate Daniel Ricciardo. We mentioned the engine failure for him. 
I I feel his time with Red Bull ticking away. Well, I don't think. I think he probably thinks that he would. You know, if if Christian is turning around and saying Max can build the team around him, um, then you kind of think, well, you can't both build. And I think he probably thinks, well, I'm going to be number two. I'll be number two to somebody else. I'll be number yeah. two to a team which has scrupulously shown itself not to have a number one uh, and i'm sure he's probably thinking well i'll do another year at uh, uh red bull which is not the worst place to be with their improvement see how mercedes are going and then probably try and jump ship to mercedes where he's big powers of toto wolf and unless valtteri massively ups his game that won't be a very difficult job to get hold of um whilst we're talking about engines engine penalties they're really good uh but they haven't my issue with this Nick, is I understand why they've put these engine restrictions in place. Uh, it's allegedly to save money. It hasn't done that. And, you know, next year, some of the parts of the power unit, you're going to have to just use two for the full season. Uh, and yeah, that's that's a silly part of it. Um, so you're talking about 11 events for, the, for some of these parts because yeah. there's 21 rounds next year. What about it is, is that the, the concept behind it um, is fair enough. If you don't have a limit on it, then all the big teams will throw a new engine every 20 minutes, as they used to, and um, budgets will be out the roof. The problem is, when you start going down the number of engines, you actually add to the cost of development. Because you know, you know, if you're doing an engine that's live for four events, then you have to make it five events or six events. It's a hugely different design, a hugely different process. It's, you, know, you have different size piston skirts, a whole lot. And so you sit there and, and, and it's a complete redesign and, and a huge cost. I didn't see an awful lot of problem when they're using five units a year. And both Mercedes but, but, and Ferrari. But the thing is, Nick, anyway, carry on doing that. The, the issue for me is that, you know, people getting 200 grid place penalties throughout the season. And, and you know, Verstappen gets a penalty and still comes through. To get on the put, well, actually, didn't get on the podium, did he? he uh, but you know, gets up to fourth position. It's not. I'm, I'm afraid it's not enough. If you if you really want to pe- to say to people, you've got to make these engines last, then don't just give them penalties that puts them on the back of the grid. You've got to either take them out of races completely. No, I'm sorry, you can't have another engine this weekend. You can't have it. <laughs> you can't. You just won't be able to start the car. Sorry. Yeah. The thing is, though, that yeah, the the point about it is, is because is people. It, are, well, my point is, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm trying to say they're just riding roughshod over this because they'll put another engine in. I mean, some people are on seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different parts of the engine when the the limit was four. We're not even close here. This is not. Oh, we might need to stick an extra one in um, at some stage and then rotate them. No, we're not even close for some of these. And and it's just if if you accept. The reason that they're doing it is to try and keep costs down. It's not improving the show. Um, no. Or, or is it? Or is it? Because you're putting fast guys at the back sometimes. No, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't it, you know, the, the point about it is, is that, let's be honest about this, um, no Mercedes team has yet taken a, a grid penalty. Fair point. Um, the Both the works teams have taken them for gearboxes, but that's a different thing entirely. Um, but no Mercedes team has taken an engine penalty because the engine wow. is designed correctly. Ferrari only took an engine penalty because Vettel was already at the back of the grid in Malaysia. And they were they thought it might be a bit tight on units. They thought, well, it doesn't matter. We can't lose anything. We'll take one again. So, so two-thirds of the engines 
uh, don't take grid penalties. So half the the other half, Renault and, and Honda, effectively do them like they're handing out um, you know free flyers at a marketplace. They they, they you know, they've not designed the engines right in the first place, so they they are taking penalties. Now normally you would associate um, going bang really easy with having lots of horsepower, but unfortunately it hasn't worked for either of them. So it's just they're just not designed as well. The issue with this is, is when it gets very tactical about, you know, we need to take another engine penalty. Oh, well, well no one's ever going to take an engine penalty at Monaco, but, you know, everyone will take one at Canada because it's just a difference in how easy it is to overtake and how much it means. I think the other problem is in this particular, in the first year of a, a regulation change, they're very much towards the back end of the season, three teams who are way quicker than everyone else. So they can afford to take penalties at any circuit where you can overtake and they will negate many of those positions. Um so it's it's a very very difficult job to 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 and i think it's again it's it's an example of f1 focusing on the wrong things um you don't need to have uh four engines a year five engines a year was absolutely fine it doesn't this is well and and, and and we're going to add more races so 21 yeah. isn't the end of it so no man but i i would assume they're going to they'll, they'll have some rules to try and get back up again a little bit but you know and it, you end up talking about it and it's not very interesting i mean i, I don't know how people are really that interested in how many energy stores anyone's had or even what it does but it, they just need to life the parts up a bit longer and then things get heavier again and that's not very racy so hopefully when we uh but aren't, the, aren't we know, doing stuff here though that is more endurance racing based than sprint racing formula one based yeah i mean i you know me i'm, I'm i haven't i don't think there's anything wrong with the basic sporting regulations in the, in the, in the mid 90s when you could test as much as you wanted you could have a spare car you could have qualifying engines a whole lot the whole point was to throw cash at it mythically i suppose that engines which were you know v10 normally aspirated weren't as expensive as these multiple hybrid machines but um that's just not the well, way the world runs now. all right who at the weekend said um we should have a spec v12 engine with a thousand horsepower that's Christian Horner because he wants anything apart from these engines. He's done badly with the last four years. You know, it's it's you know. I think Christian is a he's probably at this point now amusing himself with his broken recordness about the whole thing. Um, you know, it, it, when it was a chassis formula and he had the best designer, he wasn't saying that everyone should get two weeks of Adrian Newey, were they? They would say no. He's, yeah, they were saying it was fine. Now it's this year. It's, the last few years, it's turned around. Engine formula hasn't got the best engine. He's been just effectively been a professional winter for four years. Well, tough. That's how it works. That's sport. You know, you haven't got the best package, and the package is, is car, driver, chassis, the whole lot. So, all right, yeah, let's uh, let's finish off the F1 part of the show with uh, Brazil and Abu Dhabi, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I I have the feeling that that Lewis will probably want to win those two races, particularly after the weekend. The pressure's off. Pressure's off everybody now. I mean, does that mean we actually get we? might get something quite exciting for the last couple of races. Well, you, What's you to look for grabs? So. Uh, the, the minor place in the Constructors' Championship. Right. Um, I, uh, yeah, basically. No, I think it's second place overall. Obviously, Fettel can still lose that. Not that he really cares about it. Um, Brazil traditionally has been quite a Ferrari track, so you would expect to see them go well. Uh, I'm pretty sure that track what, as well, actually. I'm pretty sure what Lewis doesn't want to see happen, what happened... Um, when he won the championship in 2015, where he did kind of just take the foot off the gas and let Rosberg win the last three races and then gave Rosberg momentum momentum into the following year. Mm -hmm. So I think he'll be absolutely on it. Um, I think he's got some things to prove. I think he's going to fight difficult to win the race because I think in many cases he's got the third best car come Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abu Dhabi, it's 
hard to overtake. So if he can get the thing on pole, he may well be able to hold that one off. Um, whereas Brazil, there's so many variables always there that I think he'll be, he'll be doing a very good job to win in Brazil. Winning the title in, in the correct way, you mentioned that earlier on. Um, if it's tight between Bottas and Vettel for second place in the championship, do Mercedes-Benz swap Hamilton and uh, Bottas around? I really don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think I think they probably wouldn't want Lewis to give a win away. Um, that wouldn't be very likely. Um, it's not that important. But if it's like you know, second and third does something about it, you know, and there's a Ricardo or Verstappen in the head, then they might might try and do it. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports Series 12, Episode 41. Nick Damon on the line with me, John Hindoff tonight, and uh, plenty more excitement to come. Uh, shall we move on to two wheels? Yes, there's a race this weekend. Unless you've got any F1, more F1 news, but I think we've kind of no, done that, that to death. F1 it to, to Max, and congratulations to Lewis, worthy four-time world champion. Uh, and we're not just saying that because he's a Brit. We really aren't saying that because he's, but you know, anybody who knows, I, I did think it was funny when somebody accused me of being a blatantly <laughs> nationalist because I, uh, because I thought that uh, Vettel might have run into him. I, I think I said, you, you've not listened to what I say about Lewis Hamilton, have you? Um, let's talk at MotoGP now uh, and yeah. race at the weekend. Very low key, I thought Sepang. that race. Um, very wet at um, Sibang. Um, and it was won by, one to keep the race, the championship going to the last round at uh, Valencia in a couple of weeks. It was won by Andrea Davizioso in the Ducati from Jorge Lorenzo second. And, um, Ducati's one and two. Zarco, we should third. One, we should, two. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Marquez down in fourth because he could be bothered to try to take any risks to win it. So he, I think he only has to finish 11th, I think, in uh, in Valencia. Even Davizioso wins. Um Big problems for Yamaha. Yamaha have really imploded at the back end of the season with, with technical issues, the tyre wear and now in the wet, so they need to go and do some serious work well, off. Of well, when, you, when your best finisher um, as uh, as a uh, manufacturer is uh, Yuan Zarco, uh, sixth place in the championship for Yuan Zarco, but he was the best Yamaha. He was in third. But no, I, got it wrong. I, 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 I didn't have the results in front of me. I'm sorry. So, so you had two Ducatis, then a Yamaha, then Mark Marquez in fourth, then Danny Petrosa. Oh, was it Paul, was it Paul Green in third? No, Paul was not running, is he? No, it was Zarco. It was Zarco. You see, you see, he wasn't third a second ago. And I said he was in third. Oh right. <laughs> Do listen. Then Petrucci for Ducati, then Rossi for Yamaha. Uh, the rest of the points: Miller, Vinales. Vinales has been off form the last couple of races, hasn't he? Then Polisk Bargaro. Uh, Batista, Batista, Batista. Oh, sorry, I can never say it. Right. And then the two Brits, uh, Smith and Redding, uh, Barbera, Hector Barbera in 14th on the Ducati, and Carl Crutchlow got the final point. Uh, mm. I, I've got to admit that one passed me by completely at the weekend. I was sort of otherwise engaged, um, as it was my. A, my birthday weekend, and B, I was actually racing myself, of which more later. Um, how how was the race? I haven't seen any of it. Um, it was it, it, the, the only really interesting thing was when it got towards the point where it was close at the end, uh, three quarters of a yeah, second. Lorenzo was leading, um, right, and Davizioso was was following him. So everyone thought, well, they're going to swap them round, and no, Lorenzo carried on leading. Lorenzo carried on leading. Lorenzo carried on leading, and then Davizioso got through when Lorenzo ran wide, and people thought, well, did he let him through? I don't know. And apparently, um. He either hadn't read or didn't understand the coded message on his screen. Because they've now got message. They've now got an text information. message. Text message. Because they got that from last year because of the wet weather riding. Uh, and apparently, I can't remember. It was like, you know, set, you know, it was like go mode eight, which actually means 
let somebody pass and apparently didn't see it didn't read it and thought they were racing when well, i thought well come on Jorge, you should have worked out you need to let the boy through but uh so um it's quite weird because he actually he got beaten fair and square by doing that so uh, mm. uh lorenzo, lorenzo certainly improved over the last three or four races which must be very heartwarming for um ducati because it probably gives him um kind of believe that he'll come out of the blocks next year um and actually be a chance of uh, pushing for the for the title because obviously he's had a lot of problems in getting used to the cat as everyone does but he has now look he's now getting much closer to the front and uh, you would think that lorenzo's talent will actually take him to the front uh next year um dovey must now be ruining that poor result uh, Philip Island when he was yeah, 13th he, he, or something? Yeah, he's 21 points behind. He had a 13th. I mean, even, even if he had a third, he would have been, uh, that would be now 13 points and he would have been, you know, at least with a chance. So you do feel that you know, Mark Kez is, is pretty much home and hose without an engine failure. Um, which is very, very rare in most GP. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's yeah, you, you look back on the, the season and, and obviously the ones, the points you lost at the penultimate race, it seemed far more important than the points lost the first second race, but the same number of points is the problem, so it's just a way of focusing on it. But uh, Valencia, yeah, think... what sort of whose tracks Valencia? Um, historically, it's been Lorenzo's, mm. um, but not necessarily on this particular uh, bike. So Marquez, yeah, just needs to finish in the well, not in the podium, in the top ten. So he will, I'm sure, be having a sensible head on and just uh, cruise around for a victory in the world championship. But it's racing; anything can happen. Uh, what happened to Rossi? Was he just not on it this weekend? Uh, no, it's the the, he's, the Yamaha now is just all over the shop, and he just doesn't seem to work in the wet. Uh, he was quite a bit ahead of Vinales, but it's you know. It's, have, it's you, a very have you been bad slightly? Have you been slightly disappointed with Vinales this again? Second half of the season, a bit like Bottas, promised quite a lot early on, and looked like he was having a uh, a, a decent run in the championship. Maybe the torch was going to be handed over and I mean where is he sitting third still in 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 the standings but he, he hasn't really set the world on fire no, um, he's, he's, he's ahead of Rossi but only by 29 points and, and Rossi's missed a race well yeah I think you know it's he started brilliantly Vinales um uh, with a couple of wins off the bat and looked really quick and I don't know what happened at some point either the tyre construction changed or Yamaha changed up and then it just got away from them they started having rear tyre problems in the races and they got kind of wet we had a lot of wet races here actually and they had some problems with the wet mm. and you know Yamaha weren't just suddenly went off the pace they're certainly the third fastest of the works teams at the moment mm. Vinales perhaps didn't have the kit bag of experience to ride around some of these things that Rossi has so you know he's being caught up, and uh, and probably without the a uh, couple of uh, instances, certainly you know, he would have been in, in who's finished ahead of whom more often um, than it would probably be in the last half of the race of the season. It's certainly been Rossi ahead of Vinales, but it's, they've both been struggling against a bike that's not as good as the Ducati or the, or the Honda. Mm. So it's a formality, is what you're saying. Will be Mark Marquez will be crowned as champ. Fantastic save by Marquez I did that was the one thing that I did see not sure what session it was or whether it was indeed in the race but uh, Marquez once again picking up a bike from his knee and his elbow uh, on one of the right handers he has a I saw a chat with him interview with him yeah and it's I just think that Marquez he is unbelievably phenomenally talented but he's also unbelievably phenomenally lucky because he crashes so often and hardly ever hurts himself 
you know, the amount of crashes he has. He's thinking did, did, you, 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 you saw the, the clip that I'm talking about. Yes, where he, he, was, he had actually fallen off the, the front end of the bike. He'd gone, he made a mistake. He, he had made a mistake. He'd gone in, he dragged his front brake too long. The front end dropped off. You, me, 99 out of 100 other motorcyclists around the world would have parted company with the bike there and would have been going, ouch, 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 and oh my goodness, how much is my new fairing going to cost? And he picked it up on his knees, elbow, and... In, in fairness, a fair bit of uh, right hand on the throttle to stand the bike back up again. Extraordinary. Yeah, he's got, he's got a, a, a remarkable and unique talent. Um, and that's why he's, won four, he's going to run four major class championships in five years. And, you know, and, and he's only 23 and there's a chance if he stays healthy, he'll win many, many more. Um, there's not, uh, to my knowledge, that phenomenon coming behind him. You know, he's got um, Vinales, who's pretty good. Um, yeah, Rossi and Lorenzo both getting on a bit, so he's got a, perhaps a free run for another four or five championships if he keeps the bike with him and if he keeps healthy. Uh, yes, good stuff. Um, everything else is done then. Is that you finished? I think I am finished. Oh. I'm bad about that. Okay. Um, it wasn't lap seven when I went into the gravel in any of the races. <laughs> I, first, I, I kind of I watched if you can call it watching your first race on um, on uh, the timing and scoring and with the track commentary and that seemed to go quite well. See, and, I, I, and then on Sunday I went I went RC racing, me and Lewis, uh, and um, you know I think you, you you were missing my 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 ethereal guidance from behind the computer. Quite clearly, quite quite clearly. <laughs> uh, well, there'll be more about that a little bit uh, later on. Uh, this evening you're listening to Midweek Motorsport Nick thanks very much indeed for joining us on uh, Series 12 Episode 41 more from Nick Damon next week right let's uh, change the pace just a a little bit Uh, when I was talking to Nick there uh, you heard me talking about why I missed the uh, MotoGP completely uh, at the weekend I was sort of otherwise engaged down at Brands Hatch in the Sang Young Musso Sport Challenge Um, you don't really need to know what happened to me. Um, I'm sure you followed along at some stage during uh, the weekend. I'm delighted to say that joining me now is, I was going to say, one of my fellow competitors. I was in the same race, but he was almost in a different class. James Gornell uh, joins us. Uh, thank you, James, for being with us uh, this evening. And congratulations, because you are the series champion. Thank you very much, John. Yes, uh, I managed to, uh, to pull it out of the bag. Had a very good time, um, and uh, you did very well at Brands Hatch, I think, actually. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, a, a bit difficult this one because it's 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 a first year of a of a new competition, and um, there were no points scored, but you were far and away the the driver that won the most. I think five victories uh, this season uh, across the year. Um, talk a little bit about the 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 Sang Young pickup truck not everybody's first idea of a racing car but actually it translated uh, into a, a pretty good racing machine yeah absolutely they they are ridiculously fast around the corners far faster than than you'd expect you probably found that when you first jumped into it and realized just how much you had to push um they're, they're of course they're a bit different because they have the diesel engine and have a manual gearbox but actually it's it's, it's quite nice to, to get on with it's um it's no uh, diesel prototype, but uh, fun nevertheless. Interesting you should say that, though. It shares a number of characteristics. Um, first of all, it's the first racing car I've ever done where I, I took my earplugs out because I couldn't hear the engine. <laughs> and secondly, the amount of torque that it had from seemingly nothing at all and certainly ran about sort of 
1800 to 2000 revs it was like you had a thousand horsepower not the not the 200 it would spin spin up the wheels for fun absolutely and, and that's one of the tricks to, to driving them fast is to learn to deal with that torque that you that you've got and and um it i mentioned the other weekend it's a bit like racing not that i have but from, from what I've seen in, in NASCAR, you have to keep your speed. You have to really carry your speed around the corner mm. to get the best exit possible. And it, and if you try and pull it too tight or get the wrong line, you end up with that inside wheel spinning. Uh, of course, uh, we all like to have limited slip discs, but they're a life's expensive luxury. And actually, these, these things, they go around corners pretty well with that one. Uh- Three of you at the front of the field at the weekend, and when you three have been uh, racing together, you different gravy, I think I said at the weekend. That would be a Lewis Grant, yourself, uh, and young Michael O'Brien. Um, it's been tremendous competition. You three cleared off into the distance in all of the uh, the races uh, at the weekend. Uh, you come out on top, but good competition all throughout the year. Yes, yeah, it's extremely close, and what was good to see as well as some of the guys who haven't had much racing experience they managed to get closer to us uh, but as you say the three of us were out front uh, it was really stiff competition uh, these guys have a lot, lot of experience in other other series uh, Mike almost winning the Stoke Formula Ford Championship this mm. year um, I've had successes in British GT and, and single seaters and, and what have you and Lewis extremely fast also uh, done quite a bit of racing in, in mini so we're always close, and uh, nose to tail doesn't really tell the whole story. We're all glued together, I'd say, for a lot of the year. And, and you just have to be so so careful. In one mistake, and you could drop back, uh, certainly out of the top three. Uh, so you've always, always got to just keep totally sharp. Yeah, t- tell me about it. Every time I try to make up one place, you could easily drop a, drop a couple. I have to say one of the funniest things of the weekend for me was standing in a group with uh, the, the rest of the drivers, uh, with, with Michael there as well, and uh, Rebecca Jackson uh, came up and said, oh, I don't suppose anybody's... Uh, uh, got any uh, lip gloss? Uh, sorry, lip balm. And she, I think she was actually, ask, actually asking Natalie Burt, who was standing there. And Michael went, "Yeah, I've got some. Do you want to borrow it?" So from <laughs> now on, forever, that was a, that was a conversation I wasn't gonna, thought I was going to have in a, a group of racing drivers at the weekend. And Michael is now ever forevermore going to be called lip balm, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> those those young lads have got a, a future ahead of them, no doubt. Um, Nick Johnson was in for the first time at the weekend. Got a podium in his first race behind uh, Michael and yourself um, enjoyed having a good scrap with uh, Matt Smith and Gavin Pell very uh, very honest very uh, fair races and then we had the, the War Brothers uh, Luke and Simon uh, along with uh, Rebecca Natalie uh, and uh, Lewis as we mentioned it, it's been a, an eclectic group of, of drivers through the year uh, and another championship for you to add to your ever increasing number uh, the, the mantelpiece must be getting a bit weird down with silverware now how many, how many different championships have you won now in different in different series? Oh, that's a good question. I've won uh, National Kart Championships, uh, won Bark Formula Renault, so single season, British GT Champion 2008, 24 Hours of Silverstone winner 2008, mm. uh, and more recently the BMW Compact Cup. I've been the champion uh, in 2016 and again this year. So, uh, yeah, quite quite a few. Well, what what uh, what took you to what took you to the the Sangyong? Uh, sport challenge then what what was it about that that attracted you to it i love close racing it's something that i i experienced more with the bmw compact cup uh, where we have 
somewhere around 40 cars on the grid and similarly it's nose to tail uh, and sure we all like to go fast and driven some extremely fast cars but uh, being nose to tail really really pushing your race craft to the test that for me is is excellent and it means when you get in something faster again mm. um, you, you're actually i think you're going to do a better job because you're paying attention to to more of the detail yeah, I'd agree with that. And let's, by the way, for those people who might have turned out, Nick Damon gave me a bit of stick last week about picking up some flat pack furniture when I was finished for him, um, or, a, or a load of gravel. Um, you guys at the front were lapping under 60 seconds around the indie circuit. Now, that's not exactly hanging about, is it? No, absolutely not. They're not, they're not slow at all. Um, a bit of a diesel engine, you don't feel like you've got lots of top-end power, but as you said, there's loads of grunt, mm. and we go so quickly around the corners in those things that you, you're just putting in some wonderful lap times. The, the first time I jumped in, it was at Silverstone, and I noticed that from, from the breaking point to the apex, I was actually catching some guys in clear cut race cars. Yes. They're pretty impressive. Yeah, very, very impressive indeed. I know that the, in Belgium, the, there's a rallycross series that uses them, and they do have a limited slip diff. I think they're an all-wheel drive version, and they've got a plastic pickup bed on it as well, which takes about, I don't know how many hundred kilos uh, out of it on that. Uh, they're a robust thing as well, which did lead to uh, a little bit of um, unseemly driving earlier on in the season. I was very fortunate uh, that they were so robust, because I got a couple of clips at the weekend, but the Boys turned turned them around. Um, it's different as well, and certainly the uh, the spectators and uh, Chris Dawes, the commentator, seem to enjoy the, the show that was put on at the weekend. Yeah, well, it's close at the front, it's close in the middle. We don't necessarily go around nose to tail all the cars in the road, but there's always a couple of races going on. Um, the commentator is always getting excited. Mm. Um, I. Yeah, we're, we're, we're side by side. You see it in all, all the races where the cars are equal, though, don't you? Touring cars, in, in the BTC thing. Um, some people love it, some people hate it, but the cars are close, and, and it means that you do get very close to each other on track, round corners, two abreast, three abreast. And, and, and that's why that's why the Sangyongs are, are good for people to learn in. Yeah, absolutely. And it was good to see some people uh, there doing their first series, uh, first seasons of, of, of racing. So what championship will you be winning next year then, James, as you seem to make a, a bit of a habit of this? It's <laughs> a good question, John. I, I don't really know. I think I think my time in the Compact Cup has, has run its course. We've done three full seasons, so we fancy a new, a new challenge. Uh, what that will be, I don't yet know. I... I, I... You and I had a bit of a chat at the weekend. Is it time for you to go endurance racing? That the the compact cup or the, or the BMWs have a, a class of their own. The two thirty five M cars that race in the VLN. There's a there's a, a class for them there. There's a class for them in Creventnik. Um, you're you've got if, if if you don't mind me saying you've got a very very smooth style of driving. Um, and it's uh, you are deceptively fast because you don't seem to be doing that much, and that's to, always to me is the sign of a, a good driver. That I think would make a good endurance driver. Is, is that something you might be interested in? Yes, well, I enjoyed the endurance racing when we when we were doing uh, British GT uh, and, and the twenty four hours of, of Silverstone. You know, I've, I've had had some good opportunities uh, to, to do things, but you know, we we all know the sub stories about money that, that we hear in motorsport, but that's that's the devil, isn't it? Uh, but absolutely, GT racing of some description, endurance. Uh, who doesn't want to crack at Le Mans? I mean, oh. That's the dream, isn't it? That's, oh, that's where I'd love to be. 
Uh, maybe there's some stepping stones. To the MP3 class is doing very, very well. Yeah. Um, I, I work at Aerotech Laboratories uh, as head of sales and marketing. And, of course, we make the fuel tanks for most of the cars, so I get to see these lovely beasts all the time. <laughs> that, that could well be a, a next step, I should say. Is, is that somewhat frustrating for a man for whom racing runs in, in the blood, that you see all these race cars, you are sending your fabulous fuel tanks from ATL out to various race car constructors around the world thinking, I really need to get behind the wheel of one of those. <laughs> it, sometimes it can be a little frustrating, but that's, that is that is motorsport. You have to accept that. So I, I take the opportunities I can get. I like to think whenever I sat in the car, I'm doing a, a, a wonderful job and, and maybe all my championships um, just point, point to that being correct. So I'll keep doing that, keep trying to do a good job and enjoy myself whilst I do it. Just, just a, a quick final thought, if I may, on on British GT. The, it, it's it's blooming at the moment. It's it's flourishing. British GT, GT four, uh, in in particular. Uh, does that? I mean, again, is it just all about finding some budget, even at the level of of championships that you've won in the past, even though that you've got a proven track record? Is it still about bringing money? There's a few there's a few ways to do it. Um, of course, money is the way to get in there and oh, they're not getting any cheaper uh, I quite like that the GT4's coming in it's, it's resetting it a little bit giving people the opportunity to go racing for not quite the budgets we've seen GT3 uh, have, have gone up to but there's a lot of people who enjoy the racing who are looking for a, uh, a professional or a semi-professional who, who can coach uh, of course bring on their driver and uh, help the car to, to go out in front and, and win as well and, and make sure everyone's having fun. Ultimately, people take part of motorsport to either enjoy the driving or those that are watching want to enjoy watching it. Mm. So if, if there's somebody out there that needs uh, needs a bit of coaching on how to win, then uh, they need to ring me. <laughs> <laughs> and they can find you at ATL. Uh, <laughs> James, I thoroughly enjoyed the company of you and your dad, actually, uh, at the weekend, along with all your fellow can competitors in the uh, Sam, Sang Young uh, Racing uh, Challenge. Wish you the best over the winter months and I'm sure we'll see you at a racing circuit soon. I've got a feeling that uh, yourself, Michael and, and Lewis uh, are, will, are names that will pop up uh, in the future and, uh, and thanks for, for being gentle with me at the weekend. Thank you. Well done. Midweek Motorsport, where we're only halfway. And if you're still not sure about the Sang Young Musso Sport Challenge, get yourself onto your favourite website that does video and search the Silverstone race was an absolute hoot Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and thanks to everybody who made that happen down at Brands Hatch for me at the weekend. Uh, Right coming up in the second half of tonight's programme uh, very little time for me to read your tweets mainly because uh, without Tim I'm pushing all of my internet to the very very nth degree uh, but don't worry, I'm I'm trying to read them as we go along. Uh, coming up after the show tonight, the second part of Brian Sellers' Long One. You haven't heard that before. It's worth staying on for. Next, it's Marshall Pruitt. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. Midweek Motorsport Series 12, episode 41. Yes, 41 already. And uh, full dark here as it has been since the uh, the start of the programme. Now that the clocks have gone back here in the UK. If you're joining us now 
and you are thinking, oh, hang on, uh, I've missed an hour. That's because you haven't done the time conversion right or you've done it the wrong way. That's always possible. It is time now, however, to swing back left-handed through the uh, time zones from uh, here in the UK on now Greenwich Mean Time uh, to uh, Pacific Time. And that means I get to say good evening, Marshall Pruitt. Good evening, Marshall Pruitt. Hey, man. Uh, good to hear the uh, good to hear the mellifluous tones of MP again from Racer.com. Uh, right, we've got a bit of time uh, this evening, so we can uh, discuss a number of, of things. Um, let's start with a bit of there's quite a bit of sports car news uh, this week, Marshall. Most of which you've been uh, uh, very tightly in, involved in in breaking. Um, I want to start, though, with a, a story that we've, we covered in quite a bit of detail last week, but still a bit of background to fill in here. Um, as far back as last September, you were writing the story that Brendan Hartley was going to chip Ganassi. Um, we now know, I think we now know, uh, by process of elimination, if nothing else, that it looks like he's been offered a job in Formula One. This all revolves around that announcement we're talking about last week what what uh, what meat can we put on those bones uh, this week here on midweek motorsport it was interesting mate our uh, our friend will buxton pit lane formula one reporter for nbcsn who listens to uh, the he... show clearly uh he tweeted a couple of things last week then he and he said it made reference to the show so will thanks for listening and thanks for uh Thanks for doing the honourable thing and, and mentioning the show when you were answering some people's questions. That was very kind of you. He's a good lad. He has a future in the sport. <laughs> uh, Will happened to speak with uh, Red Bull slash Scuderia Toro Rosso uh, team principal friends Toast, who uh, <laughs> let's just say that it sounds like Will asked him a question, uh, more of a statement of fact in how it was presented compared to it just being a truly uh-huh. open question of instead of saying hey were you in negotiations with chip ganassi in uh, in, a, in an effort to get a hold of brendan hartley sounds like will more or less asked him a straight question of you know how did the negotiations go with uh, chip ganassi to which he said uh you know Franz's face went a few shades of pale uh, and wasn't aware that that had been uh you know he was onto that and uh his one word reply was brilliant he said uh, in regards to the negotiations of getting a hold of the kiwi uh those discussions with chip were long mm. and uh we can assume that those negotiations uh, definitely had some sort of financial benefit to Chip Ganassi Racing, ah. uh, which I think we've mentioned before. They lost Target after 27 years as the primary sponsor of their IndyCar, uh, one of their IndyCar entries, if not both at some at many points. That happened at the end of 2016. They did not really backfill that with a new title sponsor for the full season. Oh. And we know that they are losing target as their primary sponsor of one of their nascar entries the one driven by the mercurial kyle larson at the end of this season so if you look at chip ganassi racing american motor racing powerhouse losing title sponsor in indycar one year and losing that same sponsor in their other big series the next year you you wouldn't have to be too astute to figure out that money money ain't be a good thing uh in their pockets that is something they have been missing wanting so, and needing sorry uh, sorry marshall so, so just for the avoidance of doubt here because uh, i have 
seen uh, a couple of things um, around the motorsport world that doubted that Brendan had ever signed. That's not the case. So, so what we're seeing is that there was a deal either in place or at least uh, more than just being talked about, a deal in principle or perhaps even a signature on a piece of paper, which uh, Toro Rosso, presuming they do want Brendan services for next year, and I think we've kind of decided that that is the case and, and, and all things seem to point to that. So effectively, this is buying out a contract or at least making some financial reparations. Uh, it's a bit of a bit of a player transfer, a driver transfer, uh, if you will. And uh, that that is could only have, have happened if Brendan had presumably already made some commitment to Chip Ganassi and vice versa. Correct. And yeah. Anybody who is saying that there was no contract in place does not know what they're talking about and okay. should stop talking. <laughs> and uh, and if you if for those who have any further doubt, why on earth would Franz Toast? Why why on earth would a Formula One team principal have negotiations with an IndyCar team principal if there was nothing in place to negotiate? Yes, Obviously, for them to negotiate something and for Franz to acknowledge that the negotiations uh, took quite some time to get done. There would obviously have to be something binding in place that needs to be unbound. Yeah. So uh, that's why this uh, that's why this has happened. That's this is also why Ed Jones, 2016 Indy Lights champion, mm-hmm. IndyCar Rookie of the Year, third place finisher in his very first Indy 500, was named as Scott Dixon's teammate. Yeah. Uh, let's just say in the uh, day or two leading up to the Mexican Grand Prix last weekend. So, again, from a timing standpoint, what I uh, was made aware of and had on uh, unquestioned authority is that a deal was signed between Hartley and Chip Ganassi Racing uh, as as early as August. It could have even been earlier, but August is the time frame that I'd heard that something was signed. Yeah. And uh, I wrote about that in early September. And uh, let's just say that with Brendan heading to drive for Toro Rosso at Coda uh, and then being called back from Mexico, and we believe he's going to be there for the rest of the season and possibly next year, not a coincidence that the moment that Brendan starts uh, becoming an STRF1 driver, that in the middle of all this, Ed Jones is magically announced as uh, Dixon's new teammate, and then Franz Toast confirms that there were negotiations to get a hold of Brendan so again you don't there's no conspiracy theories here it's just no. pretty much straight up transaction as he mentioned no you, you don't need to be CSI to work this one out the uh, the evidence is, is pretty clear cut um, does this uh, now now I'm moving into speculation slightly we've talked facts there and that was absolute absolute fact and I, and I hope everybody understands why I wanted to get that laid out in the timeline laid out because I think it's quite important that everybody understands that the deal was done we don't know what the reparations going to be, what the compensations are going to be. But could it, given what you were saying about the parlous state of of partnerships and sponsorship for Chip Ganassi Racing, could we see Red Bull on one of the Chip Ganassi uh, Indy cars next year? I've heard that suggested, and I don't know uh, if it will or if it would. That would be interesting. Again, uh, whether. It's in the form of sponsorship, and here is Red Bull spending money uh, to actually 
you know, place a product on mm-hmm. the Ganassi car uh, or, you know, simply writing a check to Chip Ganassi Racing. I can't say how that would how that has played out. I would say that if I was advising, I would say that uh, rather than just simply getting a check, I think the team and its image would certainly be bolstered. I agree. If it said, uh, instead of just a $3 million check where we the car still looks, Scott Dixon's car, for example, uh, still looks somewhat bare, uh, I would much rather say, hey, we're going to blanket it or half blanket it in Red Bull uh, logos next year because if I'm having to go chase another company, provided I'm not talking other energy drink companies, mm-hmm. uh, that's a pretty big brand to be associated with. So, and, you know, again, I think anybody with half a knowledge of how the sport works would choose that option. I can't say. Uh, what will end up taking place, but that would be the direction I would lean if I was in those negotiations. But yeah. we do know money has uh, has changed hands, so hopefully uh, our friends at CGR have done the smart long term thing. Yeah, I, 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 it would not be a, a bad move at all. No, it, it it struck me just when you were laying out the the timeline there that that would that would make sense. I want to follow. Anyway, uh, not not a bad move. I mean, we talked a little bit about this last week, but not a bad move for Ed Jones. Either um, it was a little bit of a, a surprise when uh, that popped up, and completely, it was a hundred percent. I mean, I'm the first one to say, "Hey, uh, knew about it. We were developing it. It was no." Because <laughs> he he was on his so... way. Remind me, where was he on his way? He was, he was with, well. He was meant to be staying with Dale Coyne. Dale Coyne, thank you. And according to Dale, when I spoke with him moments after the uh, Chip Ganassi Racing announcement came out, which caught me. Uh, completely by surprise, hadn't heard a thing about it. And honestly, uh, like you, mate, you tend to hear about most things True. when they're in the works. Sometimes it's 15 minutes before the news breaks. Sometimes <laughs> it's three months before. But, you know, you usually there aren't a lot of things that get catch us completely off guard these days. And I'm raising – have been and will continue to raise my hand and say Chip Ganassi Racing gets a huge thumbs up for keeping this one completely mm. silent. How's this? When they signed Simon Page- when uh Roger Penske signed Simon Pagano. We had a feeling it was coming. When yes. he signed Joseph Newgarden, we knew it was coming. And Roger's usually the standard bearer, mate, for lockdown Good silence, point. you know, death threats, snipers outside, <laughs> uh, listening devices, bugging your phones. What you know, uh, that they are the height of secrecy and uh, suspicion. And uh, again, uh, full props to Ganassi for keeping this a hundred percent silent. And uh, so, hey, again, I just I, good on them. That doesn't happen enough. Although in theory, it's my job, and I did a bad job because I didn't know about it in advance. But all that stuff aside, uh, speaking with Dale Coyne moments after the announcement uh, came out, uh, when we were on air, mm-hmm. actually last week, uh, rang Dale and said, hey, did this catch you by surprise? He said, no, Ed told me late last week that, you know, he was going to go in a different direction. was uh, frustrated, said that he had a handshake deal right. with Ed to return, and that handshake came at Sonoma, which was roughly uh, a little over a uh, month, month and a half ago, but, you know... Uh, one person, I shouldn't say one, many people on Twitter, but one person that I responded to, Nick Yeoman, who's part of the uh, IMS radio crew, I, I really appreciate Nick's viewpoints and opinions, said, you know, well, that's Dale's fault. He's old school. You know, handshake means nothing today. And I replied, at least trying to lend a little bit of something uh, here, that had this been my father, 
he would have done the same thing. Yeah. Uh, he would have, you know, a handshake to my father, had he been in Dale's position, would have been no more and no less powerful than a signed and fully executed paper contract. Yeah. So I would say at least for Dale, I'm not trying to make excuses, just trying to lend a little bit of context. As you get older, uh, maybe for the younger listeners, you can probably attest, uh, brother, <laughs> as you get older, the things that you've onboarded in your life, the ways of doing things, sensibilities and whatnot, those tend to kind of stick. So something that I learned at 20 that was really kind of a part of who I am, that's going to continue when I'm 50, 60, 70, 80. Now, things, times change. But those things that still mean whatever they do to you usually don't. So it's not a surprise that Dale, who I'm guessing is probably 60-ish in his early 60s, in his mind from his time, that handshake – there was no there was no need for more because that was fully sufficient. Yeah. Uh, so again, just a little bit of time and context here, uh, but at the same time, and as some others raised, fully agree with them as well. If he really wanted that kid back, it's not as if the season ended yesterday. No. And they just True. shook hands True. and and Ganassi snuck in. Plenty of time to put a, a contract in front of him. Did, and I'll raise this question to you, Heindy. Do you think that we've gone six weeks since the finale without a paper contract because mm. maybe he was wanting to look at his other options? Well, just in case. Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair, fair point. Um, the only thing I would I'd ask, and, and this is, you know, a, a, again, a, a bit of a difficult question to answer. Um, I'm going to choose my words carefully here. Dale Coyne Racing has never been one of the better funded teams in the paddock going back as as far as I can remember does this put Dale in a, in a bit of a in a bit of a a bind as far as 2018 is concerned what i would say as a codicil to that is that he has had great success down the years of finding people to come and drive his his race cars not always the same people all the way through the year but how does this leave Dale Coyne Racing little bit of a challenge, and I wrote about this in a silly season piece that went up yeah. uh, a day or so ago. So Dale is a throwback in another way, and in a delightful way, brother, in that he uses the majority of his own money to fund his IndyCar team. And I'm not talking about just reaching into bags of inheritance, but Dale owns a number of businesses outside of racing from the chain of Sonny's barbecue restaurants to a drag, to a drag strip, to all kinds of stuff. He uses the profits from those other businesses to fund and has done this for a while to fund his IndyCar team. And uh, signing Sebastian Bourdais, for example, was a really big, Uh, sign in the start of 2017 that Dale wanted to do better and realized that if he invested more of his own money, uh, since sponsorship, finding true sponsorship for one of the minnows, it's always a bit of a challenge, right? You don't have the big results, therefore you can't put those results in front of big sponsors to give you money. Um, He realized that, okay, well, since I'm already doing this out of my own pocket for the most part, what if I were to spend a little bit more, uh, especially on my primary entry, my my big chance, and that being the one with Bourdais, and that's what they did. They won the opening race. Seb was you know, either first or second in the championship uh, after three or four rounds, and things were looking great till he had his big crash at Indy, uh, but keep in mind that he more or less self-funds this primary entry. 
which is you know probably four or five million dollars a year out of his own pocket. There are a couple of little sponsors that have come on board with Seb, but uh, we're not talking about truly underwriting that effort. Then in the second entry, which Ed Jones filled last year, um, Dale put in, I'm guessing, this is my guess, maybe 50% of the budget. Uh, but Ed brought the other 50%. And we can we can break that down just a little bit because it's going to get us towards the answer we're getting to here of who does he find, what does he do for 2017? I'm sorry, go. 2018. Yeah, you go. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Ed, uh, by virtue of winning the 2016 Indie Lights Championship, was presented with a $1 million check from our dear friends at Mazda Racing who uh, fund and support the Mazda Road to Indy. Well, if we're looking at a average IndyCar budget, good IndyCar budget's about $6 million. could be done for less, but let's just start with six. Well, you subtract $1 million right there because Ed's bringing a million for them from the Mazda Road to Indy. I believe Ed's parents, and this is a guess, have contributed maybe 500000 maybe a little bit more. Not a ton, but at least helpful. And we know that Ed had some sponsorship that was found. There was, uh, we'll call it a gentleman's club in Miami uh, that was very visible on the car uh, for a good portion of the year. So I don't know what the exact number is, but I'd guess two, two and a half million dollars maybe total was brought uh, for that second entry. Also keep in mind that Dale, uh, through IndyCar, IndyCar provides a roughly $1 million per year uh, stipend through the Leader Circle program. That is something they've done for many years. It's in lieu of paying big prize money to each race. They essentially said, okay, well, let's pool all the money we would spend uh, on purses outside the Indy 500 and just split it evenly between all of our full-time entries. So that way everyone's guaranteed at least a slice of the pie. So – what does that get you to? Three, three and a half million out of a roughly six million dollar budget. So tells you that Dale, between the primary entry and the second entry, what is he spending per year, mate? Five, six, seven, mm-hmm. eight million dollars? Um, you could, and uh, you know, some folks might be inclined to say, well, if you're going that far, why don't you just go the rest of the way and, and fund all of the second car? As I've said many times, I'm not fond of spending other people's money, meaning if Dale's already being generous enough to cover one and a half IndyCar entries out of his own pocket, I I don't think it's it's out of line for him to say, hey, do you want to partner with a four-time champ car champion, one of the, one of the greatest of his generations in Sebastian Bourdais? Well, guess what? I'm going to ask you to at least bring half the budget yeah. uh, to be a part of this very competitive yeah. effort and to learn under this, you know, French Jedi master here. So <laughs> all that said, with Ed moving over to Ganassi, minus that million dollars from Mazda, because that's a one-time thing for winning the Lights Championship, mm-hmm. they've got a million, they've got that same million dollar leader circle uh, fund for the number 10 entry ed's going to dive into ed i'm sure you know parents are probably having to contribute a little bit here uh, i don't know if his sponsor his gentleman's club sponsor will follow there but again wouldn't be a surprise and that's the car that tony Kanon has driven with sponsorship from ntt data and so and we've heard that they have you know are returning and that there is money there so you package all that together and that sounds like that's where you know the ability to put Ed in the car there uh, came possible. Well, you turn back around and look at that open coin seat and go, hmm, well, someone needs to come up with whatever that number is, two, yeah. two and a half, something yeah. at least. Who has that? Well, the logical answer everyone has pointed to is Connor Daly. They should hire Connor Daly. Well, again, coin's not hiring. No. Coin is looking for someone to meet him halfway. And 
having learned a little bit the last 48 hours or so, Connor has gone from having zero to I've, I've heard it's as much as a million, and there could be another million possibly in sponsorship that is possible or there or something. It's not claiming close. to have full close. understanding of it, but you know, you throw in a leader circle. Or, you know, if you look at that leader circle, uh, if you don't account that towards the team side, but the driver side, that, you know, all of a sudden we're closer to halfway than not. Yeah. And there's also uh, one other key entry left open, and that is Ed Carpenter Racing's uh, road and street course opportunity in the same car that he drives in all the ovals. And while that's not a full-time thing, and I I think many people have seen Connor would like to see him in another full-time entry, Mm -hmm. um, that too requires some money. Don't know how much. But it, it's certainly, you know, more, uh, more than a million dollars. So one way or the other, brother, um, even though talent is there. Hey, uh, Danny Kvyat, right? He's just that, well, that, kid, that kid's got a ton of talent. Shouldn't they hire him? Sure. Does he bring any money? Not you know, at I mean, all. But, you know, at least not Red Bull money. No. Uh, what about Michaela Lotion? who did not, uh, as you often say with extreme awesomeness, cover himself in glory in 2017, (laughs) but could his SMP racing money possibly be, you know, I'm just throwing out there that there are a couple of maybes and possiblies, but what IndyCar has very few of right now is that person is a proven solution or is young and has demonstrated an aptitude in IndyCar and let's hire them and go. It's all bring money or roll the dice. Yeah. I don't see anybody picking up the dice right now. No, and uh, as far as that leader circle money goes, we've got some sports car news to come with Marshall uh, in a minute, but I, I, the just something that I want to finish off with here on the whole IndyCar uh, thing that that follows along, and it's and it's money based. With um, the the news coming that Verizon are, aren't going to continue beyond their uh, current contract, how how will that work in, in terms of the funding of IndyCar? And and what do we know about how IndyCar as a series? Is uh, is doing about finding another title sponsor? They've been pretty good at it in the past. Um, Verizon have been an interesting one, but they, they're not going to continue. True, and I guess we could say right up front to that, the num- IndyCar's number one sponsor, unwavering sponsor, uh, is going nowhere, and that is the Holman George family, which owns it all which also owns Very Indianapolis good point. Motor Speedway. Very good point. Uh, the leader circle funding, which is, again, round numbers, 22 to $25 million a year total, that comes straight out of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway profits. Uh, so I don't know the amount of Verizon's annual sponsorship, their contract with the series to have their name atop uh, the series, the Verizon IndyCar series. Once it completes at the end of 2018, it will have been a five-year run which I know for some, because I read a lot of the comments about, you know, God, IndyCar is always losing sponsors and it's always that's in turmoil, to which, I say, to which I say, that's half a decade. That's yeah. longer than a, than a U.S. president serves a single term. Uh, but, again, if it wasn't IndyCar, people wouldn't be complaining. Um, <laughs> I've heard rumor, rumor that Verizon's spend was $10 million a year with the series. I don't know if that's true or not. So, again, it's just rumor. Uh, that would hurt. I know that would hurt because operationally, um, 
IndyCar's grown a little bit in recent years, staff numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, just they've become better, hired better people, more people, done more. But they've been on a – they haven't been lavish by any means as in, hey, we've got 17 people doing a job that takes 12. Uh, I, that's, that's where my concern comes is in that I know that money is something that has truly helped fa- facilitate the series and its ability to get stronger each year, do better, reach higher, etc. cetera. Uh, that's where my only worries happen to fall, and I don't have any answers on who could or might backfill that position, but the money itself – is something where if it's gone, mate, I'm concerned if we're going to start hearing about, well, you know, the technical staff has just been trimmed and yeah. this and has it, been it, trimmed and it, that's been trimmed. It's not just that either. You know, Verizon for whatever, and I know some people have a problem with how Verizon have taken control of the digital content and, you know, if you're not a Verizon user, that's been a, a, an issue for IndyCar fans. But they have activated in other ways as well and that's just as important and in some ways often more valuable than just the check that's paid over. So anyone who replaces needs to have that that activation of the sport in mind uh, as as well. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 12 and we're on to episode number 41. Marshall Pro from racer.com and uh, we are pushing on now because uh, we've got a couple of great sports car stories uh, to go through. And the first one in particular, um, this is a story of replacement, a story of recognition, a story of Renga and Ricky. Yes, it's brought to you by the letter R. And <laughs> I feel very Sesame Street right at the at the, at the moment. Renga von der Zander has been uh, uh, just a almost a constant smile in American sports car paddocks for for quite some time now. Uh, we we've known for a wee while, suspected for longer, that Ricky Taylor was was going to be leave, leaving Wayne Taylor Racing and the and the Cadillac. What we didn't know was who would take his place. We now know it is the affable uh, and very happy Ringer von Tazander. I think that's a great great hire, and that is I a hire. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's brilliant. Uh, I genuinely do. And there are a couple things I love about this. Let's start off with the silly, which, you know, always tends to be my favorite. So after uh, the, the news release went out, I rang Jordan Taylor and said, okay, just calling a bit blind here about your new teammate. I, but I know it. Tell me this is true because I know it's happened. Your dad has already called Renger Ricky at least once, hasn't he? He said, yep, already happened. <laughs> It's already happened. To which I, so when I spoke with Renger, uh, Ricky Van der Zander, Ricky exactly. Van der Zander. Well, we put up a, I put up a story with Renger, and that's one of the questions I asked. I said, "Look, brother, you got to keep in mind that you know, good old Wayne has had his has been had his son in one of his cars forever. He's been saying that forever. Are you okay if you just kind of become Ricky?" Uh, uh, Ricky Vanderzand, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, Ricky Vanderzander, Ricky Bobby, Ricky Tegler. It's a fast name. Whatever it is, I'll happily go with it. Um, the thing I love about this kid, and granted, he's 31, so he's not, you know, mm. too much of a kid anymore. But Renger came to the U.S. with a very solid European resume, from open wheel to yeah. GT cars, etc. So when he rocked up a few years ago and showed folks that he was incredibly fast in a Pro-Am PC chassis, the uh, Areca FLM09 Chevy, Mm. uh, it was clear that this was just a launching pad for the kid. And I say that because there are 
a lot of young drivers who have stepped into the PC class, which is now uh, part of our, our memory since it is gone. But there are a lot of kids who've come in, done some good work, but haven't necessarily stood out as, whoa, this this kid's fearsome. He is headed somewhere quickly. Renger did not only won the PC championship uh, last year with Starworks, but became evident that, you know, this kid is not meant to be stuck in pro-am rides. Uh, got the call from Visit Florida Racing. Uh, I would say maybe barring rare instances was the fastest uh, between he and his teammate veteran Mark Goosens in the Riley Multimatic chassis that they first had. And then when they stepped into the Liget, uh, our boy Renger <laughs> pulled off the uh, pass of the year to win the, uh, to win the Monterey Grand Prix. And so again, just clear that this kid was playing with something rather extraordinary talent wise. So of all the things you could say in support of his signing by Wayne Taylor, most coveted seat in IMSA in the prototype class, right? Yep. Defending champions, yep. seat open. Who's going to get that? Because, you, again, you're stepping into the, a seat vacated by one of the defending champions. Uh, to look at this, uh, to look at Renger, to know that he paid his dues, won the championship at the Pro-Am level, stepped into a Pro-Am, t- uh, into, I'm sorry, the uh, a privateer P2 team, which has not always demonstrated excellence. And uh, very quickly, once armed with a better chassis, was showing folks that, oh, yeah, all right, this kid's the real deal. To then see that rewarded, we see that a ton in, in American Open Wheel, Hindy, where a kid comes yeah. up the Mazda Road Indy and gets Joseph Newgarden, Spencer Piggott, Ed Jones that we've spoken about. They get something offered to them in the in the big series. Not always that clear and apparent in sports car racing. You know, we know that Mazda has its road to 24, but um, this is just, to me, a great case of, of a kid working that ladder and earning what I think is what he's due. And I think... And I'd love to hear what you think, having watched him every step of the way as well. I don't think we're going to see much of, if any, drop-off between uh, the former occupant of that car. Uh, I think folks are going to be surprised at how good he and Jordan uh, turn out to be his team. I I think in raw speed, you're absolutely right. I think the difficulty, uh, if there is going to be a difficulty, I think the difficulty is walking into what is a very professional organisation, yes, but is also a family team in the, in the literal sense. We often talk about teams being a family, but this is a very much a family team. And the fraternal relationship that Ricky and Jordan have had, um, not always, I mean, they haven't always driven together, so they have driven with other people. Let's, let's make that point straight away. But the success has come... Um, because, I'm sure, partially because of the fact that the, the competition between those two guys is uh, put to one side sometimes, um, a lot of the times. Um, there can be no greater competition than between brothers, but there can be no greater love than between brothers either. And I, I do think that if there's any problem, it will be just getting himself into that groove. I, I do not see him having any problem with the machinery. I don't see him having any problem with the broader aspects of Conic and Minolta, uh, Wayne Taylor Racing, Cadillac DPIV, whatever it is, um, the black number 10 car. Um, I don't see that at all. And, and I don't see them having any problem with him because they wouldn't have picked him otherwise. I think it's a, I, the reason I think it's a smart hire 
is because I think his personality will fit within that team and mitigate any potential issues of of the type of which I've just spoken. Um, I think that it is well. If I'm and if I'm another team in in the pit lane, I'm looking at that and going, "Oh, you kidding me?" We, you know, Jordan we, we, and uh, sort of Ricky leaves, and you know we're thinking, right? Okay, who they're going to get? Who they're going to? Uh, they've got Ringer, and it's, it's you know, and I'll ask the same question about Ed Jones moving away from Dale Coyne. Uh, what happens to visit Florida Racing? Mark Goosen's great guy. Uh, he's been a a really wonderful part of of that team, but he ain't getting any younger. Who goes to that team? Does that team have a future? And I'm not saying because they don't have Renga, but where do they get someone of, of Renga's ability, of his speed, of his uh, undoubted personality with media as, a, as an ambassador? They don't grow on trees. Hey, we've got some good drivers in the, uh, in the IMSA paddock, but that package doesn't grow on trees very true uh wrote a story recently and i apologize because my brain's farting a little bit as to when but (laughs) wrote a story that uh you know while they would not confirm um barring some sort of cataclysmic reversal of time uh we will see visit florida racing possibly under its former banner and i guess it's its official business name of spirit of daytona racing yeah. uh re- returning to the gm racing chevy racing factory family to run a brand new uh cadillac Day- uh, daytona prototype international next year i uh, have also you know i also have on fairly good authority that they would be looking to replace both full-time drivers and know of one or two that have been contacted by the team and or uh, and also a couple that have reached out to speak with the team uh you could say that there's you know one or two indycar drivers who are out of work um that might be a perfect fit uh to move over carlos muñoz is one for example who uh, was replaced by tony canon at the aj foyt racing team uh he is someone who you know has told me he would he doesn't expect to have a replacement full-time indycar drive next season so therefore would love to look at uh, something like uh, full-time DPI effort and, right. um, you know, Indy 500 or something like that. Uh, but all that said, you're right. There aren't a ton. There are a couple. If we were to look down into the GT Daytona class, uh, I know... Which I think would be a smart move. And, and we've seen in the past that those skills are transferable. It, it, you know, I, I, I don't hold with, oh, you can't drive a prototype unless you've driven a prototype and take nothing away from those who've come up through PC, Renga being poster child uh, for that. But I do think there's an opportunity for people to, to step up from the, the GT ranks. And here, we'll just, I'll throw these two names out, not saying they're leaving or won't be driving for their current team next year, but I've certainly heard both uh, either or their managers have made inquiries. But uh, if you were to look at the 3GT program, they've got two young IndyCar drivers who are, you know, I think have done a good job. One has certainly uh, almost gotten himself killed by uh, Andy Lally, but um, Sage Karam is someone who, you know, we continue to hear, could an IndyCar team pick him up? I know that he would love to move up to prototypes and uh, nothing against him at a GT car, but that kid does possess the kind of talent that 
uh, would fly better in a prototype. Obviously, he has a little bit of prototype experience when he drove for Chip Ganassi race. And, Good point. Uh, the other one who I, I think could be an even better fit is Jack Hawksworth, who yeah. was a part of the uh, AJ Foyt team through the end of 2016, moved over to IMSA with 3GT. But this is also a kid that has fairly extensive uh, PC experience and uh you know, rocket fast. Not saying Jack is the uh, same kind of fun, flowery, smiley personality of a Renger. Uh, yeah, we could the- teach him that. He might, it might yeah. be slightly do a Yorkshireman, but we can, we can teach him that. He has a certain, he has a certain Yorkshire charm. Very down to earth, of course, as people from that neck of the woods tend to be in the north of north of England. But I, 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 I certainly think that uh, that. Both of those are good. And, and I tell you what, Marshall, uh, I agree with you because I think that having a bit of GT experience doesn't do any prototype driver any harm. I'm, I'm not saying it's essential, but I don't think that it is a bad thing to understand what the GT, and particularly GT Daytona drivers are going through, driving a you know £3,000, £2,700 uh, if you prefer 1300 kilo uh, race car on a second stint on a set of tyres that is moving around and you just can't necessarily always get out of the way of the prototypes. It gives a certain understanding that I think it's difficult to have if you haven't drove that. Not saying it's essential, but I think it's a nice little, another little tick in the toolbox. I think that's it's a perfect observation. And think about this. We're going to have the delightful Fernando Alonso coming and competing <laughs> with us at Daytona in a couple of months. And Fernando, car unquestioned. I mean, we know he's going to master that Liget within three laps. But will he, at 2 a.m., coming up on the change racing Lamborghini, know that, oh, the driving behavior I'm seeing, and it speaks to so-and-so being behind the wheel, and I know that based on a full year of racing against him in GT Daytona, tells me that, boy, if I were to stick my nose down the inside here, it's going to get chopped off, versus if his teammate so-and-so is in the car, and I flash three or four times, they're probably going to know that they need to let me through. So to your exact point, I think it's perfect. IndyCar grade talent who's been in GT racing can step up to a prototype and know more or less, aha, I remember last year, this guy at VIR did this to me, and I tell you, that's going to affect how I drive the next three corners so we don't end up as a DNF. So great point. No, and and, uh, it never ceases to amaze me how very good drivers take all of that in. And I've been very fortunate to work in the commentary booth with some very good drivers who drive prototypes and drive GT cars. And I'll tell you now, Marino Franchitti, when I've, even when I first worked with him many years ago, it amazed me how quickly, even if we didn't have the information on the timing screen in those days, he would say, oh, that's such and such a driver. That's Dave Miggins in that car. Well, are, you, are you sure? Oh, yeah, that's his helmet. And and I'm thinking, I've barely seen a shot of the car, and he <laughs> spotted the helmet. So eventually, during the course of whatever six-hour race it was, I think we were in Paris doing this one, actually, back in the, the old motors, the much uh, the, the much lamented loss of, of motors and, and Fred Vigier running that, that, that channel. Um, sadly, no more. Um, the, I, I think we were in Paris doing a six-hour race. And I said, how, how do you even spot it? He says, well, you've got to. Because if and and exactly what you said, if I'm coming up behind him in a prototype, 
then I need to know looking in the mirrors. I look in their mirrors. Why do you look in their mirrors? Because they're yep. pointing at the helmet. And if I see a flash of green, I know it's Dave Miggins. If it's a flash of red, it's Marshall Pruitt. And they're going to behave differently as I come up to them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, no, no. You have to. <laughs> and I said, so hang on. You're holding that for all of the guys. He says, well, you know, not everybody, but you know the guys that you need to look out for. And you know the guys who've, who've done you right in the past. And it's like, Wow. That's pretty cool, and uh, you know. In, interestingly, though, uh, you soon you soon learn this when you're out on track, as I found at the at the weekend. The guys you know, you can stick your nose in, and the, and the guys that you the guys that you no, I'm not quite close enough. I think I better come out of that now. I'm um, I'm not staring into his eyes side by side through the window. I'm not going to make this stick. So uh, it's it's very interesting, and I do honestly, I, and I think that. Knowing how that GT car reacts as well um, under them it will not be any any major problems for any of those guys. Interesting to see who might get that uh, that driver at uh, Spirit of of Daytona. We'll stay with prototypes and uh, Marshall Pruitt stays with us uh, for Midweek Motorsports Series 12, episode number 41 this year. Um, we talked about surprises earlier on. Um, here's one I didn't see coming. Um, Andy Lally, one of the mainstays of the development of the Acura NSX programme uh, and the racing programme and a winner with Michael Shank Racing's Acura NSX programme this year, tempted away from from that programme. Uh, that was one, again, that I hadn't heard a rumour about, if I'm honest. Everything I had heard, not saying that these were facts, just the little <laughs> things that we hear, was that Andy was... Staying with Michael Shank Racing, they are converting, for those who uh, haven't followed all the uh, minutia and whatnot that gives us headaches, but one of the reasons we love sports car racing, uh, IMSA, in its agreement in letting Acura come in to develop its NSX GT3 as a factory effort in the uh, explicitly Pro-Am GT Daytona class, along with the Lexus 3GT program this season as well, said, okay, come in, first year with a new car, we understand that you're wanting to develop it in competition that's fine but at the end of the year uh the factory part goes away and if you guys want to continue then it needs to be as a true pro-am independent effort so andy as one of the key factory signings with the uh, michael shank racing acura effort uh everything i had heard and everything i believe michael shank was expecting was that andy would be staying on as a uh call it direct shank employee and uh, again, at least from the the rumors and rumblings and whatnot, that he was going to be the uh, you know kind of the key uh, asset being offered and or dangled in front of potential pro-am clients. Hey, you know, if you want to come drive with us next year in one of these Acuras, well, we're going to have the guy, you know, Andy Lally, Mr. Pro Racing Kick-Ass Driver, uh, as your teammate. So I'm not saying that Andy did anything wrong. I don't believe anything was signed, uh, but I do have a pretty strong feeling there was at least an expectation he would be back with Mike next year from the team side. And so learning that he would not and that he would be returning to Magnus Racing, where he had uh, some very solid success with that team. Um, yeah, I 
yeah, I didn't expect it. Uh, and obviously, well, I haven't had a chance to speak with Andy. It is on my list to do, but just curious as to why. And uh, I don't know if Shank didn't shower enough or if he had, a, <laughs> a you know, an unpleasant cologne or uh, anyways, all kidding aside. And the other thing quickly to add is Magnus has yet to confirm where they will be racing next that year. That was my next uh, question. Wink, that was my wink. next question. Yes. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Um Let's just say it would be strange for a customer Audi team that has used some extreme talent like Pierre Caffer and otherwise in World Challenge last year to sign a non-factory uh, driver in Andy Lally uh, if they're con- planning on continuing in World Challenge. So uh, I think as I wrote around Petit Le Mans, all signs point to Magnus and their Audi R8 LMS GT3 heading back to IMSA after a one-year hiatus. And let's just hope that there are no more VIRS ah. incidents uh, that would lead the team to pack up and flip birds and uh, go away angrily. So, In fairness, um, the uh, without them, it could be quite a quiet year for Audi uh, sport customer racing in IMSA uh, in in certainly in the big show um, we yet to find out what GT4 holds in in GS in in the Continental Tire Sports Car ch- Challenge um, but with um, Alex Job racing uh, not confirmed for anything I spoke to Alex at uh, Petit Le Mans nothing in the works there we already knew of the fate of the 57 car and the Stevenson uh, team um, that leaves things looking pretty forlorn for Audi Sport customer racing if Magnus weren't to come back yeah so I would say that we can fairly safely uh, do our accounting for next year with the four rings in GTD with one full time Magnus entry uh, we've also heard from uh, the good folks at Land uh, who not only did good an point. amazing job to almost win Daytona and then absolutely win Petit Le Mans, uh, supported in part by our friends at Starworks and Peter Barron. Um, we have it on fairly solid belief that they will be full-time as well. Uh, I've read some quotes from a team owner uh, that they expect to spoke with uh, the awesome young Californian Connor Filippi that he didn't have any news to break, but said, you know, hey, you know, definitely heard the talks that hopefully we'll be uh, we'll be here full time. So that could be number two. And speaking with our friend, head of customer sport, Chris Ranke, uh, he said there could be a third possibly next year. So uh, really, if as, as long as we have a couple of each of the uh, marks that have been in, even those that are converting from full pro efforts to proper privateer efforts in GTD, I mean, look, uh, the prototype class with its Daytona Prototype Internationals, P2s, that's going to be the marquee class because they're the biggest, fastest, and most spaceship-like. But uh, for those of us who also really, really, really groove and love GT racing, GTLM should be more or less unchanged. And GTD, we think, is going to continue to be just as awesome. So all signs point towards good things. And... Uh, we will see how many we have. I one thing I haven't heard, and you know, of course, will be proven out that I should have been working harder and trying to find out uh, if it does happen. But I haven't heard of any new 
GT3 based models coming in for next year into IMSA at least. So if they well, are, haven't they, they got pretty much everybody that they could have? Uh, there's there's not much that they that they yeah, haven't I mean, got. Bentley, McLaren come to mind, and uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, you know, uh, an example or two somewhere else. The problem but... is with those two manufacturers. Sorry, not the problem. The issue for the two manufacturers that you've just mentioned is that I think they'd be reticent to pay the the manufacturer registration required to to, to be counted for manufacturer points. Um, they're relatively small boutique style manufacturers they run their racing programs very much as a customer side of things and i'm i'm not sure the current model at imsa supports that kind of that kind of operation for them to to get the uh, to get the uh, the recognition that they might want also i know from bentley's point of view certainly i'm sure mclaren uh, would love some of their customers to go there. Bentley would have to be a customer operation because they uh, don't want to enter, still, having spoken to Brian Gush relatively recently, still don't want to enter anything where they can't win races outright. And we know that they've also, we know that both brands, I believe Bentley more actively, have had discussions about uh, possibly partnering with teams. We've certainly heard some names thrown around of, you know, hey, could they be coming in with, with Team X, provided Team X is willing to, you know, more or less bankroll these things. So we, it's not as if these conversations have never been held. They've just never been executed to the point of, and coming next year, yes. the Continental GT3 entered by. So, you know, look. You and I are continually on the hunt of uh, wealthy people who would <laughs> willingly part with their money for our amusement. So if anybody's listening, hey, we've got a couple of brands we'd like to see in GTD. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, finish tonight, Marshall. And uh, by the way, I, I, I should say, as we, we mentioned at half time, coming straight after the show tonight is the second part of our Brian Sellers long one. You remember we played Ooh. the first part at uh, Petit Le Mans. Second part has its first airing straight after this show tonight. Uh, and so that we don't keep you up too late, we are going to finish just a tiny little bit early uh, tonight. Um, a little bit of an update, if you would, please, uh, on the uh, the, the uh, Wilson Children's Fund. Uh, Justin's uh, untimely uh, death. Uh, no one's forgotten it. Let's be honest. Um, and I know that there's still talk of uh, of some kind of uh, cockpit on IndyCar, possibly, or Indy Lights cars, uh, as possibly seen as as next year. That, that's that's chat for another time. Uh, w- what's happening with the Children's Fund, MP? I know you've been uh, very closely uh, following this and, and pushing this along. Well, thanks, mate. Well, we, I posted a uh, an update last weekend on uh, the rarely used MarshallPruitt.com site, and uh, just wanted to give folks a bit of an update that we're uh, we are speeding along quickly towards completing what we're doing for uh, the, my second annual Wilson Children's Fund charity raising effort. So last year. Uh, we did a charity print, uh, used one of my start shots from the Watkins Glen IndyCar race and had uh, our dear friend Andy Blackmore, who uh, volunteered his time, did a lovely border and added the name of all 22 drivers who took the start to the print. So I made about a dozen of those. Nice. Uh, they were all signed, or they were signed by all the drivers, thanks to uh, the great folks at Sonoma Raceway and IndyCar, um, and had those. Then we had a, you know, cu- couple of legends and heroes of IndyCar racing sign them as well. 
And with those, you know, whatever it was, 10, 11, maybe even 12 of those, sent those off to my friend Paul Zimmerman, who owns and runs the Motorsport Collector memorabilia store in Chicago. And uh, he held a silent auction during December, and we ended up raising, I think, about $11,000. So, uh, I mean, just good stuff. And the cool thing is, is, you know, folks don't write a check to me or pay to Paul. Uh, We just have them go straight to the link on the Wilson Children's Fund page, use the PayPal, and so just go straight to to Justin's Little Girls. Uh, So for this year, having surprised, gone way beyond what I thought we could do last year, I said, all right, idiot, aim higher. So, uh, Instead of doing a single print, decided to do three different prints. The first one is the big one. It's 20 inches by 30 inches, so it's a large print. Mm. It's a start shot of the from turn one of the Indy 500 with all 33 drivers. Obviously, with a certain Spaniard by the name of Fernando Alonso in that mix, uh, I don't know if there's going to be a start shot that you know is that cool wow. for many years to come. So with Andy stepping in yet again, did an amazing border, added all 33 drivers' names, uh, starting at the top left with the winner, Takuma Sato, back three rows to a final position. And so I have 29 of the 33 signatures so far. And the cool part wow. is uh, the other two prints, uh, something that I've done uh, working directly with our friend Zach Brown from McLaren. And uh, I sent him a couple options. I said, hey, doing the charity thing uh, effort here, would uh, McLaren be in to help with that? And he said, absolutely. Sent him a couple options of uh, photos that I thought he might like. He picked two. One is of Fernando that I took of him crossing the Yard of Bricks uh, with the big uh, Indy Pagoda behind him. And another one was uh, a head-on shot of him, uh, a close zoom of him looking straight ahead in the cockpit of his car at Indy. Anyway, so we added uh, on those, Andy added signature blocks for team co-entrant Michael Andretti, Zach Brown, Fernando, and uh, his driver coach, Gilles DeFerrin. So last weekend, and I'll wrap this up quickly here, yeah, right. uh, our dear friends at McLaren, uh, Sylvia, who is uh, one of their heads of PR, said, hey, Sylvia, if I were to send these to you to your hotel in Coda, since I'm not going to be down there, do you think you could kind of guard them with your life and have Fernando signed, you know, the, the dozen field of 33 prints plus the, uh, another dozen of each of the other two. Um, and she said, absolutely. And not only did Fernando sign all of them, she was kind enough to take some photos. Uh, so we've got, you know, cool photo Providence. of Fernando signing nice. some of the, well, that, and you know, any questions about authenticity, you Very go, good. there he is, uh, Gilles DeFerrin signing them as well. So I just got those back. And uh, so I need to send uh, the field of 33s out to get a couple more done uh, by a couple drivers, but those are almost done. The uh, the two specific Fernando prints are finished. So what I'm going to do is send 10 of each to the Motorsport Collector, and those will go up again for silent auction in December. And just the other little fun thing, and it's just stuff that, brother, I realize this is what we do, but you still have these moments where you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't believe this is actually happening. So not only did Fernando sign all of them, which is amazing, but for the Field of 33 prints, uh, the very first signature to go on all of them was Anthony Joseph Foyt. And uh, I can just tell you, for the folks who don't know, AJ does not really sign autographs. No. Barked at, yelled at. Th- those days passed decades ago. Um, so he's, I actually was in there and took a photo while he was signing them. AJ signed them. 
Rick Mears signed them. So they're two of the three only men ever, living examples, uh, four-time Indy 500 winners. And from there, we added Roger Penske, Dario Franchitti, Jimmy Vassar, Bobby Ray Hall, Paul Tracy. Um, and I might be forgetting one or two others. I'm going to try and add a few others, but uh, you just add the um, the these these are just the pillars uh, of the sport. Plus the field of 33 drivers with Takuma as the winner and all the other victories, oh, Montoya. Uh, so I'm hoping I'm hoping between the field of 33 prints and the two specific Fernando prints, if we can't raise at least a thousand dollars with each of those, if not more, I'm hoping this year we can do at least 30,000. If we could get it to closer to 50, I'm just saying um, that I would say would make a lot of people feel really good about, uh, you know, their time, whether it's putting the artwork on it, like Andy, whether it's our friend, Matt Cleary, who's done the PR for all this to, you know, our friend Paul Zimmerman. I mean, look, man, it, it's signatures on prints. It's not exactly hard labor, manual labor. But uh, if we could use that and uh, the benevolence of good folks wanting to put those on their walls, uh, helping Justin's little girls with uh, some money there, I think that'd be a pretty cool Christmas. Yeah, mate, well done. Uh, you're a good man, Marshall Pro. Thanks for joining us tonight. Marshall Pro from racer.com. Uh, more details on all of that. Uh, go to Marshall Pruitt's website as well, uh, which is marshallpruitt.com, of course. Uh, next week, we're at Cota. Uh, we'll be doing the show live from there. I've got to work out what the time zones is because I've got no clue at the moment with us having changed our clocks and uh, not everywhere else having done so. Uh, this weekend, it is the FIAWEC from China. Uh, Johnny Palmer with qualifying Saturday night. Oh no, Saturday morning, early hours, won't it? Will uh, that will be Sunday morning, early hours in the UK? I will be joining Johnny for the six hours uh, of Shanghai. Hope you can join us for that. Thanks to Marshall, uh, to James Gornell, and to the rest of our guests uh, this evening, including Nick Damon and. Uh, Tim will be back next week for another edition of Midweek Motorsports. Stay tuned for the Brian Sellers Long One Part 2 straight after this programme. Uh, there's no time to explain. Uh, the Llama is still driving a pickup truck. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.